Well, for the past three weeks, we have been wrapping our minds around Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And within these verses, we have labored to uncover what we have referred to as the five indictments. Now, these indictments, you will remember, hang over the heads of every unconverted creature. There are no exclusions. There are no escape hatches. These are indictments that infect and affect every non-believer. We learn that every non-believer, every non-Christian, every person who has failed to put his or her trust and belief and confidence on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have failed to honor God as God. Every unconverted creature has failed to give thanks to God. Every unconverted creature has failed to thank thoughts after God. These unconverted creatures fail to have a heart for God. And every unconverted creature, we learned last week, fails to worship God as God demands. And as a result, each and every unconverted creature stands guilty before a holy God. Now, as I rehearse this, as I review this, even as I say it now, that every creature stands guilty before a holy God, it's as like I, I, I can almost hear the response of postmodern culture. It goes something like this How dare you say that? Did you know that if I went to Western Washington University, or if you went to Western Washington University and you, you stood up on a pedestal and you said, ladies and gentlemen, I have a message. If you have failed to follow Christ, you are guilty. I'll guarantee you that no one will applaud. In fact, you may be in a bit of danger. Because our culture, our society, and it's not just... Here in Whatcom County, it's all around the world, Scripture says. They hate that message. They respond with vehemence to the message that all unconverted creatures stand guilty before a holy God. And so now with a, a broader and a deeper understanding of the five indictments, we are in a much better position to move forward in our treatment of Romans chapter 1. We referred to those those indictments as the grim indictments. It's interesting. One of the elders came up to me last week after the service, Steve. And Steve made this comment. He said, and Steve, you didn't see my notes, did you? I know you didn't see my notes. Steve said this, Pastor, I've looked ahead and the news doesn't get any better. Let me give you an idea of how I really think that Steve was looking at my notes. I'm just going to read for you. As Paul continues to write, I'm afraid the news doesn't get any better. <laughs> so Steve and I, we're just, we're in sync. It's in stereo. As we move forward in the progression of Paul's thought, we will see that the initial consequences, those initial consequences that the, that the guilty creature must bear, and there are three additional consequences that we will explore in the weeks to come. We're going to look at consequence number one today and number two next week and number three, Lord willing, the following week. 
Well, the title of the message to provide the framework for the rest of Romans chapter 1 is The Tragic Fallout. And the subtitle is A Corrupted People. And before we examine this tragic fallout, may I ask that you once again review the all-important context of this section of Scripture. May I ask you to seriously... To seriously ponder where you stand with God today. Not your spouse, not your son, not your daughter, not your aunt or your uncle or grandpa or grandma. Not your pagan neighbor, but you. Where do you stand before the holy God of the universe? And the way you can evaluate that is to to ask, do the indictments that we learned about over the last three weeks in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, do they hang over your head? And if you stand condemned today, as we've already indicated, the news gets much, much worse. As you will learn about the tragic fallout of your rebellion. Now, for those of you who have been acquitted, and that includes many of you, for those of you who have been acquitted, I want you to see as this will come across as a little bit of a negative passage. And those of you who are Christians may begin to ponder the idea of why do we keep talking about all this negative stuff? I want you to see the radical hopelessness. The radical corruption that your neighbors and your friends and your family members who are not Christians fall under at this very moment. But I also want you to see the radical corruption that God delivered you from. I remember preaching a message many, many years ago here at Christ Fellowship. And I referred over and over and over again to the rearview mirror. And my buddy, Ken Olson, he's always so good to provide uh, object lessons and illustrations, especially post-sermon. And so he got me a a rear-view mirror that is on my desk. And every time I look at that rear-view mirror, I remember that message. Well, as followers of Jesus, in one respect, we are to put the past behind, as Paul says in the book of Philippians, and move forward by the grace of God and for his glory. But in another respect, it is a healthy thing to... Do as we're going to do today and look intently into the rearview mirror. And when we look in the rearview mirror, we see radical corruption. We see radical sin. We see radical hopelessness. And what that should cause us to do is to have outstretched arms that say, Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And so this message and the messages that are to come have deep, deep significance, not only for the unbeliever, but they have deep and weighty significance for the believer as well. Turn in your Bibles, if you have not already done so, to Romans chapter 1. And I want to have you stand to your feet once again for the reading of God's word as we will take time this morning to study verses 24 and 25. This is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is no secret that as we merely read these words that we have a a, a heavy, heavy passage before us. And Lord, we're committed at Christ Fellowship to, to preaching through the pages of Scripture verse by verse. And we're committed to not skipping over the verses that make us uncomfortable. Those of us who are familiar with Romans 1, we recognize that next week it will become even more uncomfortable. But Lord, we don't skirt these passages. We embrace them. We, we trust you. And we acknowledge that you are the God of truth. And that you have our best interests in mind. Father, as we will see today, we once again acknowledge freshly that you are the creator. And we are the creatures. You call the shots. We are called to obey. You are the king and we are subjects to the king. And my prayer today, God, is that if there is anyone here and there are no doubt many people here who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, that by the end of our service today, that someone would be radically converted, radically transformed, radically regenerated, not because of words that come from this pulpit, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do a miracle in the heart of someone today. We ask that you do a miracle in more than one heart, that there would be radical transformation, that someone would leave clean instead of corrupted. And so Lord, may our hearts be soft before you today as we digest these very difficult realities we entrust this time to you in jesus name amen well the first tragic fallout as we have already seen in the subtitle of the message is a corrupted people a corrupted people and there is a critical word that provides us with a clue that gives us an idea of how Paul will proceed. I want to show you this verse on the screen and have you look at it with me. Verse 24. Therefore, does anyone have any idea which is the, 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 the clue, the, can I say the magic word in a Baptist church? There's a magic word here in verse 24. It's the word, therefore. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That word, that crucial word that I want you to see is highlighted in, I'm colorblind. Is that, what color is that? I know it's different than the rest of it though. Blue? That blue word, therefore, is the key word in this passage that will get us started. Some of you know that when you're reading the word of God and you come across that word, therefore, that is a, a transition word. It's a very important word. It's a crucial word. And 
If you've never heard this before, this is worth writing down. Whenever you come across the word therefore, you're going to ask this question in the back of your minds. You're going to ask yourself, what is it therefore? Therefore, what is it therefore? It is there because of what we learned over the past three weeks. Namely, as I've already indicated, that all sinful Unconverted creatures stand guilty before a holy God. I want to have you look at this chart to see that these sinful creatures, and you'll recall that if, if you fall as one who is guilty on any one of the five indictments, you remember what the book of James teaches. If you have violated one, you violated them all. I used to do this illustration when I was a youth pastor. I'd take an old Miracle Whip jar. Yes, I grew up with Miracle Whip, not mayonnaise. My grandpa worked for Kraft. And I see some amen to Miracle Whips out there, right? Thank you, Randy. I used to take an old Miracle Whip jar and I'd take off the label. And I'd break out a, a, a Sharpie and I'd draw a circle. And I'd draw a pie chart. Ten pieces of pie on that Miracle Whip jar. And then I'd say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And those represent the Ten Commandments. And I would ask young people, how many of you have violated commandment number one? How many of you have violated commandment number six? How many of you have violated commandment number ten? And there is always one student, always. The illustration always worked and it would work today if I did it here. I would always ask, is there one that you haven't broken? And invariably in youth groups, someone would say, yeah, I've never committed adultery. Right? I'd say, well, okay, Sonny, which one have you violated? Well, I violate number one from time to time. Right? And so at that point, I would break out my shop glasses. Yes, I have shop glasses. Just don't have any tools, Chris. I would put my shop glasses on, my safety glasses, and I would say, okay, Sonny. You violated number one, so what we're going to do is we're going to take this hammer and we're going to see what happens when we smash number one. Now, you're, you're, this is a smart crowd, right? When you smash number one, what happens? The whole thing shatters. So listen, if, if you have violated one of the, or if you fall under one of the indictments in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, you violated them all. You are guilty before a holy God. And so here's what happens. These guilty creatures, it leads to corruption. That is the, the first tragic fallout. I want to look at that on the screen. And this will provide a, a bit of a matrix for where we're going to head over the next three weeks. The first tragic fallout of our radical guilt and corruption is that we become corrupted people. And I believe the, the best way to understand this radical corruption is by examining two key headings. And I want to give those to you in advance, give you a bit of a roadmap as we move forward. The key headings are this, the divine sanction, you see this in your notes, the divine sanction, and then next we'll look at the divine motivation. So first, the divine sanction. This divine sanction is found once again in verse 24. Therefore, what's it there for? Verse 21 to 23. God gave them up. I want to take a minute. I want to focus on this little phrase. God gave them up. That little phrase, he gave them up, that comes from a, 
an important Greek word. It's, it's the Greek word paradidomai. Par- just for fun, because it's, you know, I, I, a movie that I enjoy, there's a line in the movie, my son is going to laugh, and the guy says in the movie that Francisco, that's a fun name to say, isn't it? You know what movie I'm talking about? The movie Elf, Francisco, he just likes to say it over and over again. So let's do, it's fun to say paradidomai. Would you say that with me on three? One, two, three. And let's try it one more time. That was a little weak, right? One, two, three. Paradidomai. What does it mean? He gave them up. Paradidomai is also translated to deliver. And you'll see the importance of that in just a minute. It means to surrender someone or something to another. It means to to give up, to, to give over, to hand over. And there are some powerful images of paradidomai in the pages of the New Testament. I don't want to have you hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and turn to several passages so you can get a handle, if you will, on paradidomai. These are several powerful images of that Greek word. So hold your finger in Romans 1 and go over to Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. The first powerful image is found in this short passage. Read it with me. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over. You see that? They will deliver. They will paradidomize you over to courts. Do you have the image in your mind? They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. Matthew chapter 17, a few pages over. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. And what I want you to see here is that this Greek word paradidomai is never translated as give up or give over as it is in Romans chapter 1. It's always translated as to deliver. And so look again at Romans 17, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. And they were in... They were gathering in Galilee, and Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be, do you see that? Delivered into the hands of men. Move forward to Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. Matthew 20, verse 18, and I love to hear the the rustling of pages. Matthew 20, 18 says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be paradidomai. He will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Do you see the decisiveness, the really the militant nature of this word to, to hand over, to deliver over? Matthew chapter 20, verse 19. We will condemn him to death and to deliver paradidomai him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Move towards the end of the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 27, verse 2. Scripture says here, they bound him, speaking of Jesus, and they led him away and paradidomai. They delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Can you see this in your mind's eye? 
They have interrogated the only innocent person in all of human history. They have interrogated the only righteous man in all of human history. They have him and they deliver him over and he is sent to be crucified for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Matthew chapter 27 verse 26 says, Then he released them to Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. These are some powerful, impactful images of this Greek term paradidomai. But move forward with me. And I want you to see the pertinent aspects now of paradidomai. Back to Romans chapter 1 verse 24. And I literally want you to etch this little phrase into your hearts and minds. Therefore, God paradidomai. This is the activity of a sovereign God who gives over, who paradidomize the sinful creatures. There are five pertinent aspects that I see here of paradidomai. The first one is this. It is voluntary. It is voluntary. That is, God freely gave up these guilty creatures. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens voluntarily. Number two, Another pertinent aspect of paradidomai, it is sovereign. This is not merely a a passive surrendering of God, uh, a giving in to the whims of the creature and just kind of a, a passivity, a holy passivity. Rather, when God gives up the sinful creatures, he does so with sovereign intentions. Listen to Martin Luther, and I I have been just enjoying reading Luther's commentary so much on the book of Romans. We do we not stand on the shoulder shoulders of our great Protestant heroes? And Luther, of course, is one of them. He says this of God. He permits the perverse sinner to break his commands all the more viciously in order that he might punish him more severely. This indeed is a permission on God's part since he withdraws his saving hand from him and deserts him. That leads to the third pertinent aspect, that this is an act of divine permission. It is an act of sovereign divine Permission, but it gets more intense. Fourthly, I want you to see this pertinent aspect of paradidomai is that it is a withholding now of divine protection. Now, think about this. For those of you who are unconverted, you are, are learning some things that will either make you very offended or very repentant. You are learning that in your sin, God has has given you over. 
And we're going to see what he's given you over to, but it's a, it's a voluntary giving over. It's a sovereign giving over. This is an act of divine permission, but as I've already said, it's also a withholding of divine protection. It's as if you are standing out in the rain, and this is a horrible illustration, but you'll get it. It's like standing out in the rain in your underwear with no umbrella. I know it's a little weird. But you, it's kind of like, some of you are thinking like, awkward. If you're an unconverted creature, and you have just learned that God withholds his divine protection, it's like you're standing out in a snowstorm in your BVDs. Awkward. It's getting, can you see it? No, don't, don't imagine that. This is, this is not good. This is a bad place to be. And just to lead you forward a bit, we're going to see that there is hope as the sermon progresses for every unconverted sinner. It's a withholding of divine protection. When God gives them over, he allows sin to to take its course in your life. There's a fifth pertinent aspect I want you to see, and it's the most intense. That this giving over of God is an act of... Of divine judgment. It's an act of divine judgment. It is a, a formal surrendering of someone or something to another domain. And this is a domain that you don't want to be in. And so please remember that God hates sin with a holy passion. And so when he voluntarily and sovereignly grants permission For you to carry out an act of sin, God is exercising divine judgment. Now, notice with me what God delivers them up to. I know it's the question you are asking. The fallen creature, as Romans 124 says, is given up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That leads us to the third important heading, and that is we need to take a minute, we need to take several minutes to profile the sinful creature. Now, here we are in 2019, and all I have to do is say profile, and some of you are going, whoa, wait a minute, you can't do that in our culture, you're going to get in trouble. Probably so. Maybe I will. I don't even care, right? This is, we preach the word of God, so we're going to profile the sinful creature. Let me give an example. It's a political example. That's probably what's going to get me in trouble, right? One of my favorite United States senators is Senator Tim Scott. Does anyone know Tim, Tim Scott? He's a black man. He's a senator from South Carolina. If, if you're not familiar with him, would you jot down Tim Scott and go home and Google his picture? And you'll see, like, you're going to want to get to know him. He's got the most beautiful smile you've ever seen on a man. The guy's just incredible. He's, he's, a, he's a, a Christian man. I think he's a terrific representative for the state of South Carolina. I read his book that he wrote with Trey Gowdy. Spence, I know you like Trey Gowdy. It's a book about their friendship that I read several months ago. And one of the things that Senator Scott talks about is some of the ways that he has been placed in a position where he was profiled as an African-American man. And I have to be honest with you. I was thinking like, ah, I don't know about this. And I love the guy. So I'm going to listen to him. 
And he tells a story about on more than one occasion, he would be picked up by a police officer. He hadn't even done anything wrong. And the only reason he got picked up is he was a black man. He got profiled. There's another illustration that's even more worse that made my blood boil when I read about it. Is he approaches the Senate floor and he gets ready to walk through the the massive double doors. And one of the security guards asks him to see his creds. I want to see your credentials. He's, You know what he's thinking? He's like, Ugh. it would be like if Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House, walked into the chamber, the House of Representatives. It would be like if the guard said, hey, I want to see your... He's like, I'm Newt Gingrich. Like, give me a break. Well, the same holds true with Senator Scott. Everyone in Washington knows who Senator Scott is. And he got roughed up by this ridiculous security guard who... Basically, it was profiling him. And so that's the kind of profiling that we want nothing to do with. But the profiling that we do want to do is found in the word of God. And we want to be careful to profile the status of the sinful creature. We have learned in previous messages that the heart, the cardia, is the sum total of who a person is. It's the, the inner self. It includes several things. It includes the mind. It includes the will, it includes the affections, it includes the desires of the heart, it includes the intellect. Basically, what the heart is, is is you. Like my friend Leona, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of your heart, Leona, right? I know some of your likes, I know some of your dislikes, right? I was thinking of preaching a five-minute topical sermon for you on gardening today, just for you, Leona, right? Do you know what would happen if I preached a five-minute topical sermon on gardening? Leona would find a big stick and take me out back and beat me with it. Right, Leona? So I, I know some of the things you don't like, and I agree with you. We don't want any of that. So the heart is who we are. What are we passionate about? What do we dislike? Who are we as creatures? Well, this leads us to profiling that sinful heart. There are three things that emerge for us here in verse 24. God gave them up to, first of all, the lustfulness of their hearts or a lustful heart. The Greek word here is epithumia, and it's a, it's a very prominent word in the pages of the New Testament. It means evil craving, evil craving. It means someone who is self-indulgent, a, a person who has a craving that that cancels out proper affections for God. And it is often translated as desires. And if you have an idea about this word epithumia, you can automatically assume that none of those desires are good. None of those desires are virtuous. All of those desires are sinful, sinful, sinful. Let me read you a few verses where the word is translated desires. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its epithumia, to gratify its desires. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and, someone help me, desires, epithumia. Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Colossians 3, 5. And men, this will be 
one of the key passages that we will study together in our Veritas class beginning on September 8th. And I think I heard that we're going to have 100% participation. I'm not sure where I heard that, but I think that's the goal. All right, Ken? Colossians 3.5, put to death. By the way, men, this, this is going to be a radical class. This is not going to be the class where we're going to sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. None of that. This is going to be a, a militant class. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. That's epithumia. Covetousness, which Paul says is idolatry. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires and the eyes of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Back to Romans one twenty four, We see here as we profile the fallen creature, you're getting an idea that this is not looking good, right? As Steve said, it's, it's getting worse. Is this fallen creature is held captive by a lust, lustful heart. There's another thing, though, he's held cap, captive to, and that is an impure heart. This comes from a Greek word that means simply immorality. Immorality, understood especially as dirty or impure. And this is a word that pertains especially to sexual sin. More on that next week. There's a third thing we need to see as we profile this sinful creature who is unconverted. And that is, Paul says, he has a dishonorable body. He or she has a dishonorable body, which comes from a word that means shame, dishonor, or lack of respect. And there is a a movement within secular counseling circles where we're told, I don't want you to feel any shame. Do you know that is, is violently antithetical to biblical teaching? If you're here this morning, it's going to sound cold and callous, but I say it with the heart of a, a... I trust a loving shepherd. If you're unconverted, you should feel shame. And the solution you'll hear here in a few minutes as you come to grips with that shame. And so the sum total of this person that we have profiled who has a a lustful heart, an impure heart, and a dishonorable body adds up to corruption. This is a corrupt person. I want to take a sidestep here and ask a follow-up question. What is it that the culture that we live in, what do they say about such a person? What does culture say about this person who has a lustful and an impure heart and a dishonorable body? Our culture says this, don't judge this kind of a person. How many of you are are familiar with what I'm referring to here? Don't ever judge. In fact, I've even heard it said like this. The Bible says to don't judge. Nothing could be further from the truth. Culture says this. Don't ever admonish a corrupted person. And here's the one that gets me. Be. It's the T word. Tolerant. You need to be tolerant. Here's what I've discovered is our our culture that demands followers of Jesus to be tolerant. They're not very tolerant. Have you learned that? They're not very tolerant. 
we are told, follow your heart. Rock and roll fans may remember a song that Ozzy Osbourne made popular in the 70s where he sang about Mr. Crowley. How many of you remember that song? Aleister Crowley. The worldview of Aleister Crowley can be summed up in one sentence. Do what thou wilt. That is to say, you do whatever makes you the happiest. You run from God. You disobey God. You run from the word of God. We are told in our culture, it's my body. I'll do as I please. And it makes me think of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 4, where he says that they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, at this point, we are on the horns of a dilemma because while the culture dictates one thing and calls for tolerance, the word of God says something entirely different. And so I want to take a minute and explore with you what the word of God says about this corrupt person who is held captive by a lustful and impure heart and a dishonorable body. Hold your finger in Romans 1 and go over, because I think it's important for you to see this, to two passages, one in the book of Ephesians and the other in the book of 1 Corinthians. First Ephesians, and these will be very, very important passages as we move forward next week. First Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Here's the question. What does the word of God say about this corrupted person? Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You see, there, there is simply no tolerance for these kinds of sins from the perspective of God or the word of God. And then go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And it's important that you turn there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. And I believe, based on personal experience, and I think many of you will understand what I am referring to, and many of you have been a little bit behind the eight ball on this issue, that the matter of homosexuality, we even have new names for it, LGBTQ+, we've renamed it, is going to be, if it's not already, one of the defining issues of our day. And I would admonish you at this point, to be ready for the onslaught because it's coming. It's already here. And we need to have the battle lines drawn and understand what the word of God says about these things. People have personally said to me, to my face, the Bible never says one thing in a negative light about homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is that clear? That's really clear. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, verse 11 is the best part of this section of scripture. Paul says, and such were some of you. Here are these Corinthians who had been swimming in a sea of depravity and that they had embraced these sins and the Holy Spirit quickened their hearts and regenerated them and transformed them and they became new. They they became new creatures. And what I want you to see here is I've emphasized the sin of homosexuality. I want you to see that it's sandwiched right between a bunch of other sins. And I'm convinced that we have done this, and I'm convinced that I have been guilty of this over the years. Is we have elevated the sin of homosexuality to make it the biggie. It's not the biggie. It's just one in a list of several sins. I had a chance to read a book that I, for some reason, had never read by Jerry Bridges. He wrote this book several years before he went to be with the Lord. The title of the book is Respectable Sins. You want to get challenged by a book? Pick up Respectable Sins. He doesn't talk about homosexuality. He doesn't talk about idolatry. He doesn't talk about adultery or sexual immorality. He talks about what I refer to as the Baptist sins. Right? You know what the Baptist sins are? Gluttony. Being undisciplined. Being selfish. Did you know that those sins will send you to hell just as quick as the sin of homosexuality? So we're not minimizing those sins, but we're not maximizing the sin of homosexuality. And so I want to encourage you as we as we move forward next week, where I will address very candidly the sin of homosexuality. We need to grow in our love for the homosexual community. I don't know about you. I, I have some friends who are professing homosexuals. And I can tell you the transformation that has happened in my heart has gone something like this. I'm thinking of one particular friend of mine who graduated from Multnomah University with me. He lived down the hall from me for four years. Dear friend, he's married to a man. And I used to look at the picture of my friend. Some of you have heard this story apologize but i used to look at the picture of my friend with his gay lover and my heart would seethe it made me so mad and i think there may be an element of righteous anger that's appropriate but the lord has convicted me that you know what you you need to love your friend who is drowning in a sea of sin and so it's almost like the the holy spirit worked on my heart to move me from profound anger to profound grief and so i've told a few of you what has happened in recent years when i see a picture of my friend online now i'm to the point of tears and i think that's what needs to happen in our hearts everyone is we look at the culture that we're living in drowning in the sin of homosexuality and all the other sins we need to have compassion for these people we need to love these people they are image bearers who need the gospel just as much as I need the gospel and you need the gospel. And so Paul's aim in verse 23 is to show 
how God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And this is what we refer to as the divine sanction. But let me move forward because God always has a reason for every decision he makes. Have you discovered that? God doesn't do things arbitrarily. He always has a reason for what he does. And so move with me now from the divine sanction to the divine motivation. And we have one more important key word that occurs in verse 25. And I'd encourage you to highlight that, to circle that. It's the word because, because. He says, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's divine motivation for giving up the creature. And I want to make a point here. And it's an important point. As you look, most of you have the ESV. Some of you have the NIV and the NAS. There's an important distinction I believe we need to make. And if you read the verse with me in verse 25, it says this. They exchanged the truth about God for, let's look at that verse on the screen. They exchanged the truth about God for, do you see that? If you look in your translation, you are likely to see that it's translated a lie. It would be better translated as the lie. You see the difference? The lie. That's how the ESV translates it. That's how the NAS translates it. That's how the NIV translates it. That's how the RSV translates it. The only translation I could dig up and unearth a translation that reflected the lie was the New King James. Kudos for the New King James. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. Now, we learned back in verses 22 and 23 that there was a pagan exchange where the creatures claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and creeping creatures. In verse 25, we see an additional pagan exchange. And we also see two divine motives. Why did God give them up? Motivation number one. And we've already seen it. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. You see, the truth about God, as this passage reveals, is he is the creator. He is sovereign. And as we learned last week, he is the divine judge. He is good. He is holy. He is loving. He is transcendent. He is personal. But what does the creature do? They make an exchange. That phrase exchange means to put in place of another. They have exchanged the glory of the creator for the sinfulness of the creature. That is, the pagan mind has settled for the lie instead of the truth of God. Whenever a creature denies or dismantles God, here's what he does, or here's what she does. He or she creates substitutes and ends up erecting false gods in the place of the living God. And this pagan demolition is deeply dishonoring To God, of course, and leads people on a path, as you know, that not only dishonors God, it leads them on a path to total and utter destruction. 
Look also in verse 24 at the word lie. It comes from the Greek word pseudos. And we all know if something's pseudo, it's, it's not true. It's a, a statement that perverts the truth. But then I want you to see verse I want you to see verse uh, 25 in a different light. Let's look at it together. I want you to see this and, and see the difference this will make in, in your mind. So they exchanged and, and pay close attention to the definite article. That's the word the. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Listen to what Peter Jones says about this construction. He says, these four definite articles, the word the, reflecting the antithetical character of Paul's thinking. Here referring to four realities. Truth, lie, creator, creation. The truth, Jones says, consists in the worship and service of the creator. The lie consists in the worship and the service of the creation. And I wish we had, and Chris, your, your, your words are like, like just stabbing me in the heart right now. Because Chris said something to me a few weeks ago. He goes, no, don't, don't rip us off. You know, don't, don't, don't run through a passage without doing it justice. This is a section where we could probably spend the next several weeks and examine the lie. And the reason we're not going to do that is I don't want to focus on the lie. I want to focus on the truth. But let me give you two very pertinent examples of the lie. What are we talking about when the creature makes this pagan exchange? Here's one example, and this is a worldview that is becoming more and more popular. It's the worldview called pantheism. Pantheism is the lie that says God is all and all is God. God is in everything. Have you ever seen the film The Lion King? You see pantheism in The Lion King. The creation now is divine. Never once in all of sacred scripture do we see that creation is divine. There's only one who is divine. He is the creator. Everything else is the creation. And so this destructive worldview not only destroys the personal nature of God, it also destroys human dignity. Moreover, pantheism negates the very attributes which are attributed to the God of the Bible. Now, it's been several years since the last Star Wars movie came out. But did you realize that that's a movie that has grossed over $2 billion? Not thousand, not million, billion. I can't even wrap my mind around that. It's $2.07 billion. That's as of a few weeks ago. In box office sales. And I didn't check with my son to ask for his permission. I don't think it'll be a problem. But I'll never forget. I don't know if you remember it, Nathan. But after seeing that movie, we went and enjoyed the movie together. And on the way home, and I had to go home and and write this down. Because this is what Nathan said to me. Because he was able to identify the unbiblical worldview that emerges in the film. And here's what he said. Quote, there was no distinction between the creator and the creature. This is a big problem, end quote. You see what my son did? You see, you can go and enjoy a movie, and you don't have to agree with every proposition in the movie, but you can walk away and say, I enjoyed the plot, I enjoyed the acting, I enjoyed the music, I enjoyed the cinematography, but there was a, an underlying worldview 
that Nathan identified that is so very important. Peter Jones says this, The Bible warns us not to worship the creation, but to worship and serve only the Creator. The starting point of gospel truth is that God the Creator in the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one and only God. And that all which is not God was created by Him. The Christian faith maintains a separateness between God and His creation. Our time is slipping away, but let me give you one more example of the lie. It's the worldview known as humanism. Humanism is an example of a system of belief that fails also to maintain a distinction between the creator and the creature. There's a document called the Humanist Manifesto. If my memory serves me correctly, there's three versions of the Humanist Manifesto. The first Humanist Manifesto has some propositions. Let me read you the first two propositions. First, Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Did you hear that? The universe is self-existing and not created. Scientifically and logically, that's not even possible. A thinking person will look at that and say, that's absolute absurdity. That's hogwash. There's a second statement. Humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. That is, there is no distinction between the creator and the creation. Move finally with me to motivation number two. The reason God gave them over is that they worshiped and served the creature rather than than the creator. You see, the creature is totally content to exchange the truth of God for the lie. And such an exchange, I believe, never takes place in a vacuum. It's not as if the creature's walking along and says, I think I'll exchange the truth of God for the lie. No, there are always implications. Such an exchange never takes place in a vacuum. In other words, when the creature makes the exchange, there are dramatic changes that take place in our lives. Namely, They worship the creature or the creation rather than the creator. That word worship means to show devotion to a deity. In other words, the creation gets turned into a god. And that word serve means to to do divine service. And so here's the bottom line, if I could sum it up. Every person, believer and unbeliever, is a worshiper. You could even go so far to say every believer and unbeliever is a theologian. Everyone has a view about God. Everyone believes propositions about God. One of those individuals was a singer in the late 70s, and some of you know him very well. He was the theologian by the name of Bob Dylan. You know what Dylan taught us? Some of you could probably just sing it. He taught us you got to serve somebody, right? He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble or you might like to dance. Not a Baptist, of course. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high-degree thief, 
You may call yourself doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. There are three effects that this lie, this pagan exchange has on people. And you'll see this play itself out in the lives of people. First of all, it affects our theology. The lie affects our theology. That is, the lie affects what we believe about God. The lie also affects our spirituality. It affects how we worship. And the lie finally affects our behavior. And this is one to highlight, to mark, because it affects our behavior, especially in the sexual arena, which we will explore next week. And so the creature commits this horrible series of sins in verse 24 and 25. And this is the tragic fallout. God gave up corrupt people. Instead of bowing down to God, they bow down to the spirit of the age. Instead of submitting to God, they submit to the spirit of the age. And I remember the individual that said this, he who marries the spirit of the age will soon become a widower. Jesus told the inquisitive attorney that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the tragic fallout is that the creature simply refuses to do that. The creature refuses to worship the triune God, the one who, verse 25 says, is blessed forever or praised forever. And so God gives up corrupted people. It's the kind of thing when you hear that should make the hair on your arms stand on end, both the converted and the unconverted. When you come face to face with your corruption, you're at the crossroads. When you realize that your heart is drowning in lust and impurity, when you're willing to admit that you have used your body in a dishonorable way, you're standing on the horns of a dilemma. You're at a critical junction. You're at the fork in the road. When you have been confronted with the fact that you have exchanged the truth about God for the lie, that you have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, you face the most important decision you will ever make in your life. How will you break free? Is there any hope for this corrupted creature who has been given up by Almighty God? And here's what I've discovered. That when the creature who is corrupted comes face to face with their sin, here's what they do. They begin to climb the ladder of good works. They say something like this. Maybe if I put more money in the offering plate, maybe if I get involved in ministry, maybe if I commit to attending church, maybe if I become a member of the church, maybe I should start loving my neighbor with greater purposefulness. And they climb the ladder of good works and they get to the top of the ladder and they realize that they're no closer to God. My hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was just a teenager, he wandered into a Methodist church and he sat down and listened to the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, the pastor came right up to young Charles and he said, young man, you look miserable. 
And that day, Charles Haddon Spurgeon heard the gospel probably for about the 400th time. And God transformed his heart and his life was forever changed. Listen, if you're here and you are under the five indictments, that if you are corrupt according to the standards of God's word, here's what you don't need. You don't need a self-improvement plan. You don't need a life coach. You don't need to read the latest book on Oprah's book club. You certainly don't need read, not to read anything by Jill Osteen with his health and wealth false gospel. If you're here and you're corrupted, you do not need a yoga class. You do not need a personal trainer. You do not need a psychologist. Here's what you need. You simply need the gospel. You simply need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before John Bunyan was converted in Bedford, England, he said this, sin and corruption, isn't it interesting he used that word? Sin and corruption would naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. And so what is the corrupted creature need the corrupted creature needs the gospel the corrupted creature needs to realize that god sent jesus to to live the life that we can never live he lived he died on the cross that that death that we all deserve to die he bore the wrath of god in your place and he calls you to trust him and to believe in him and to turn from your sins and so i leave you with this question this morning there are only two kinds of people And I do my best to shake hands with as many people as I can when you leave. And this is what's going to be on my mind today. There's only two kinds of people. One, there are clean people and there are corrupted people. My goal is that every person would leave clean and no people would leave corrupted. For every person who has made the pagan exchange is corrupted. Your heart is drowning in lust and filled with impurity. You conduct yourself in dishonorable ways. Conversely, every clean person has been forgiven by God on the basis of Jesus' life, death on the cross, and his resurrection. Nothing more and nothing less. And so the gospel beckons unconverted sinners to to cast themselves exclusively on the grace of Jesus. That same gospel, however, also beckons Christians to delight in grace to cherish grace, to cling to grace, and to trust an all-sufficient Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close singing praise to you, I pray that each person would ponder where they stand before you. Do I stand among the clean? Do I stand among the corrupted? For all the corrupted, I pray that the gospel has been clearly presented that each person that is not yet a believer, that they would understand the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ is their final payment for every sin that they have, they have ever committed and every sin they will commit, and that we are called to, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. May that radical transformation be taking place in someone's heart and life right now. And then for the clean, for those who have been forgiven by a holy God, all because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. May, may each of us delight in grace. May we revel in gr- grace. May we cling to the promises of God. May we walk into this week with new 
resolve that we are numbered among the people of God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus accomplished in our stead. In Jesus' name, amen.